There's a saying that maybe you've heard before, maybe you've experienced this before, but the saying is uh, being the odd man out. Have you ever heard that? Uh, being the odd man out, it means that you are or someone is left out of the group. They're not included. And uh, and sometimes we experience this and we can kind of laugh it off. You know, you maybe when you were growing up, you you weren't selected or maybe you were left off of uh, left off of the kickball team or pick up basketball or maybe you were selected last. And and looking back, you you realize that those guys apparently knew what they were doing. Uh, you probably should not have been selected uh, first, second, third, or even fourth round. And it's, it was better for everybody on, upon reflection that you were the odd man out uh, in that particular realm. But on the other times, it is a much more serious and, and hurtful experience when you become the odd man out. And typically being the odd man out is just a, it's an idiom that refers to uh, lacking something, having something in your life that's missing. And it could be missing in your character, your personality, maybe even your ability or capabilities that, that just puts you outside of the group. And today's message in Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43, we encounter a man who is out Outside of the group, there is a group of people around Jesus Christ and they're traveling to Jerusalem. We'll look at the context in a moment. And there's one man in this particular passage that's on the roadside and he's not a part of the group. Now, this morning, I want to teach us through this passage. We're talking about being not invisible and looking at a series of passages in this series. This is the fifth of six sermons, which means that next week is the final week in this series. But we're looking at passages where people feel invisible. They feel excluded or pushed to the side. And last week, we looked at Genesis at a passage of scripture where people wished they were invisible and that God couldn't see them. But what we discover is that not only does God see us and recognize where we are, but he's ready to give us what we need to bring us out of that moment or out of that situation and ultimately to bring completeness into our life. And so today, looking at this particular passage... It, this is one of those sermons that I need to teach through the passage so that we can get to the preaching part of the sermon, okay? Uh, so I've got to teach it. I need you to stick with me as we walk through this passage of scripture beginning in verse 35 so that we can find this resolve. And in the resolve, I'm going to show you that this man's response to Jesus's question is an answer and should be the answer that you give to every question in life. So it's kind of a big point that we're going to find, discover together. And the good news is I've only got 14 minutes to do it. So I need you to buckle up, okay? I'm joking. I'm going to take longer than 14 minutes. <clears throat> Luke chapter 18, verse 35. Uh, As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Okay, remember... When we study God's word, we almost always should study God's word within the context of the passage. And we've been talking about this. Context is both key and king in our study of scripture. It is key to understanding what God's word means within its original context and its king. So it's key to understanding and it's king, which means what God's word meant to say within its original context trumps what you think it ought to say in your contemporary context, okay? We want to be faithful and accurate in our study of God's word. So we look at the context, and verse 35 gives us contextual cues for the scripture. 
Jesus is drawing near to Jericho. He is, if we read the passage in greater scope, it means spanning out and reading the preceding passages, Jesus is with his disciples and he is walking and he is talking on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. So every year there are thousands, tens of thousands of Jews that descend on or ascend to Jerusalem from wherever they are um, in Galilee or other parts of the ancient Near East. And they'll come to Jerusalem in annual pilgrimages for regularly prescribed festivals. This is the Passover festival that Jesus is coming to. And if we read in the preceding verses, we recognize that this will be Jesus's final pilgrimage to Jerusalem from Galilee. This will be the time where he goes to Jerusalem and when he gets there for this particular Passover feast, he will have the institution, he will institute the Lord's Supper. He will be betrayed by Judas. He will be captured by the royal guard. He will be falsely accused and then imprisoned and beaten and then he will be crucified and put on a cross that he did not deserve. He will be buried in a grave that was not his grave and three days later, God will resurrect resurrect him from the grave. This is about to happen. And this is where we are in the story. He is making his way with other people to Jericho. Now he's coming from Galilee. If you look in the back of your Bibles, many of your Bibles will have maps of the, um, of Israel during Jesus's time. Sometimes your Bibles will write Palestinian region during Jesus's time. Jesus is coming from Galilee, which is in the North. And most likely the route that he would have followed would have been down south along the Jordan River. There are mountains and then you have the Jordan River to the east of the mountains and the easiest route accessible would have been to walk along roads next to the Jordan River until you get to the city of Jericho, which is located just northeast of Jerusalem. And at Jericho, you would then make a south, southwestern turn on a very popular thoroughfare, highly traveled thoroughfare to Jerusalem. So Jesus is coming south. He's with all of his uh, disciples and other people they've collected along the way. And he's making his way to Jericho. And there is a blind man who was sitting by the roadside begging. That's the context. Are you with me so far? The next verse tells us that as Jesus and his people are coming into Jericho and there's a blind man by the roadside who is begging, he hears a crowd going by and he inquires what this meant. So, okay, just some more of the context of what's taking place. During these festivals or the days and weeks leading up to the festivals, you would have Jews, tens of thousands of Jews coming from all over the world uh, or all over the ancient Near East to go to Jerusalem for these mega festivals, these Passover, the Passover festival and the festival of booths and others. And so people in those towns on the roadways to Jerusalem who may not have the privilege or the opportunity to travel to Jerusalem for multi-day festivals, they would have the opportunity to sit by the roadside and watch thousands of people travel through. Now, again, these are some small towns. These are some places that don't just have a lot of activity. And so for most of them, like this is a fantastic way to pass the time. Like they're sitting on the front porches watching all these people walk by and they're just people watching. They're like, how you doing? You know, they're just watching the people travel through. But not only are they able to see and watch people, but they also have the opportunity to hear some of the most famous rabbis of their day and age come through. What rabbis would do, or teachers of the day, is wherever they were coming from, or wherever they were going, they would just 
teach while they're walking. They would walk and talk. And so folks that are in some of these towns along the thoroughfares to Jerusalem, they may have the opportunity to see real life in person some of the rabbis they had heard about but never seen or heard teach. And while those guys are walking and talking through their town on their way to Jerusalem, a lot of the folks in the town could come up alongside of them and hear for themselves, these famous rabbis teaching while they're walking. And so there would naturally be groups of people walking around a rabbi coming through Jericho, which was kind of one of the pivotal cities with major thoroughfares to get to Jerusalem. There would always be these groups coming through, but this is different. This is different. This man would have heard groups coming through all day for weeks leading up to the major festivals. But with this particular crowd, he says, hey, what's going on? Something's different. And what is different is Jesus is coming through. And for three years, Jesus has been teaching things that people have never heard with an authority that people had never experienced. And he had been performing miracles, which demonstrated that he was the Christ. And there was an electric buzz in the air. And this man says, something's different. What's happening? In verse 37, the people respond and they say, it's Jesus of Nazareth that's passing by. So they tell him, hey, it's Jesus. The buzz is that it's Jesus coming through. And so the man, he cries out. He doesn't just call out, but he cries out. And this is what he says. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now he calls Jesus by name. That's a fantastic way to get someone's attention. Just saying. He says, Jesus calls him by name, but then he uses a messianic title for Jesus. He calls him son of David. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter one, verse 21, the very first verse in the very first chapter of the New Testament, there is a long list called the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Some of you that read through your Bibles aren't familiar with that list because I know what you do. You skip it every time. You're like, I just got to read these names. I can't pronounce half of them. And it's just like so-and-so and so-and-so, son of so-and-so. So at the very beginning in chapter one, verse one, he says the genealogy of Jesus Christ from the, the son of David. Prophetically, the Christ, the Messiah, the savior of the nation of Israel will be from the royal lineage of David. And not only was it prophesied that he would come from the lineage of David, but also The nation of Israel believed that the Christ would come and assume the throne of David. Therefore, when this man says, Jesus, son of David, he is expressing his faith that this is the Christ. It's a very powerful thing. It's a very powerful statement because it's a statement that other people were not making when they called Jesus. But he declared, probably having never met of Jesus, he says, Jesus, son of David. And then he says, have mercy on me. Now, mercy is... Not receiving what we deserve. If someone is being merciful to you, they're not giving you the thing that you deserve. So if you're being merciful to someone who has wronged you, you're not going to implement justice or judgment on them. You're going to give them a pass. That's what mercy is. In this particular context, the word mercy is oriented to God's personhood and character. You and I can express and exercise mercy, but in this particular word usage, mercy is leaning heavily on God's covenant 
practice and promise. In other words, Jesus, son of David, I believe you're the Messiah. Will you honor your covenant with me? Will you honor your promise with me? And here's the beauty of God's covenant. God's covenant is upheld and kept not because of how we are faithful towards him, but because of how he is faithful towards us. You see, we break the covenant with God all the time. We don't love him the way that we should. We don't honor him the way that we should. We don't obey him the way that we should. But God never fails to uphold his side of the agreement. And so he says, Jesus, son of David, you're the Christ. Have mercy on me. Would you do for me what is within your covenant? Verse 39. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. So people rebuke him. They tell him to be silent. This is the second time in, uh, in, Math, in Luke chapter 18 that the crowd has rebuked someone. The other instance is in verse 15 of Luke chapter 18 when children were coming to Jesus Christ and the people rebuked the children and said, hey, don't come to Jesus Christ. Give them some space. And Jesus is like, don't turn away the children, but bring them to me if you only had the faith of a child. And still they don't learn their lesson. Here in verse, uh, here later in the chapter, they rebuke him again. Rebuking means to assign a perceived or pre- predetermined value to. In other words, these people determined that this man wasn't worthy or credentialed enough to access and come to Jesus Christ. What a terrible thing for people to think that they have the ability to determine who gets to come to Jesus and who doesn't. Now, the passage says that it's the ones who were leading the group. Now, the scripture doesn't say this specifically, but I'm fearful that Luke and some of the disciples were kind of uh, saying what they're not saying. Maybe it was the disciples that were leading the group, and maybe possibly it was some of those that were nearest to Jesus, guiding him on his way to Jerusalem, that were the ones that were guilty of turning someone away from Jesus. I sure hope not, but it does tell us The scripture does tell us those who were in front, those who were leading the group were the ones that rebuked the man. But this man, he doesn't stop. He doesn't stop. The scripture tells us in verse 39 that even though they rebuked him, telling him to be silent, to be invisible, if you will, he cried out all the more. Now I have to be very careful preaching this particular passage of scripture because I uh, do not want us to have to replace the sound system here. We have a building program going on and we don't want to put any money into the sound system here. But what the scripture says is that he cried out with everything that he had. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And why would he cry so desperately for Jesus Christ? Because this may be his only chance to have a miracle in his life. What if never again does Jesus walk by? And we know from the next chapters that Jesus will not walk by on that road again. This is his last chance to have access to Jesus Christ. And he is not going to let a crowd shut him up. He is determined that he is going to have an encounter with Jesus Christ and he screams at the top of his lungs with everything that he has, son of David, have mercy on me. And the next verse has three very, very powerful words. And Jesus stopped. The one true living God born of a virgin 
who was and is and will always be, the one who was in the beginning and spoke everything into existence, he stopped for this man. And then he says, commands as a matter of fact, hey, bring him to me. I kind of hope the ones that were rebuking this man were the ones that Jesus said, you go get him. Do you kind of hope that too? I hope that whoever it was that said, hey dude, just be silent. I hope that Jesus is like, y'all have already established a relationship with him. Why don't you go and get that guy? (laughs) Don't laugh too hard. That could be you and me. And let me just make a, a side point here. There's not one person in this church in the pew or in the pulpit that has the authority to tell Jesus where he's going to go and to determine who's allowed to come to Jesus Christ. Not one of us. So Jesus commands them, go get him, and the man comes to them, and we read in the scripture, and Jesus says to him, what is it, powerful question here, okay? What is it that you want me to do for you? Now, this is a rhetorical question, but for the sake of, uh, of morale, I'm going to give you the opportunity to answer it. Do you think that Jesus was asking that question because he didn't know what the man needed? No, Jesus knew what he needed. So why was Jesus asking the question? Jesus was asking the question because the man needed to know what he needed. See, if you don't know what God is going to do for you, you're not going to be in a very good position to praise him for what he has done for you because you won't see exactly what he did, how he did it, when he did it, and why he did it. And so if you pray generic prayers, Lord, fix me, and then the Lord fixes you, how are you going to praise him and glorify him for how he fixed you if you didn't know specifically what he was doing in your life? It's kind of the rationale that's happening here. So Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And the man's response is very powerful. It's provoking. And I want to take a moment and show it to you because I've preached this passage a number of times before, but in my study this week, preparing for this particular message, the Lord pointed my attention to a word in his response that has changed the way that I've looked at this passage, and it's really opened my heart to some truth about who God is. Can I show it to you? So in his response, the man says, would you let me recover my sight? Would you let me recover my sight? And so, if the man wants to recover his sight, that means what? He used to be able to see, but he can't anymore. I don't know, sometimes I've read this passage and I was like, okay, Jesus comes across this blind man. This man's always been blind. He doesn't really know what he's lost, but he wants to have his sight back because everybody else can see. But that's not the case. The case of the matter is, is that Jesus comes across a blind man who used to be able to see, but he has, for one reason or another, unknown to us, he's lost his ability to see the world around him. His life has been drastically changed. And his request to Jesus is, Jesus, would you let me recover the ability to see? Sometimes when we pray, we ask for God to give us stuff. Maybe that's just me. Y'all ever pray like that? God, give me this. God, give me that. God, give me this. God, give me that. God, provide this. God, provide that. What if we started praying, not exclusively, but sometimes, what if we started praying, God, let me recover something that I've lost in life. 
You know, I think that if we prayed not just for God to give us something new, but if we began to pray for God to allow us to recover something that's been lost, forfeited, or taken from us, that we might begin to understand understand God's heart in a slightly different and deeper way. Because God doesn't think all the time, and I'm just going to create something new, but God's in the business of rescuing, redeeming, and recovering that which he's already lost. As a matter of fact, God created the world. He said in all of his creation it was good, but through sin it was lost. And now the meta-narrative of Scripture is that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to save and to recover what was taken from him. And so it's very much at the heart of who God is to recover, not just to give something that's new. And so maybe what we should be doing is not praying, God, give me more, but God, allow me to recover what you've already provided for me. I mean, it's at the heart of God. Jesus told parables about a lost sheep and a lost coin. He didn't just say, oh, there was this man that lost the sheep, so he just went and got another one. No, he said he searched out till he found it. There's this woman that had this lost coin. She couldn't find it, so she just went and got another one. That's not what he said. This woman searched until she found the coin. You see, Jesus is in the recovery business. Therefore, if we would think more about what God could recover in our life or what we would ask him to recover in our life, perhaps we would begin resonating with the heart and way of God slightly more. What are some of the things that we may need to have recovered in our life? If, if you could ask Jesus to allow you to recover anything that you have lost or had taken from you or you forfeited on your own, what would that be? I've been thinking about that question. Like what, what is it that, that I used to have that God gave me that I've lost that I wished he would recover? Just some of the, some of the things that I'll, I'll share with you. Some of them deeply personal, others of them maybe a, a little bit more generic. Uh, what if sometimes I pray God would you just let me recover a a heart of peace like I get tired of being anxious and just just sort of torn divided about things probably I'm probably the only one but Lord I just wish he would give me a peace again a settledness a joy Man, I remember, I remember some of the sweetest times in my life was when I had like this, this innocent joy. Like I think back to high school before I started being exposed to all of the things that make us terrible human beings in our adulthood. And I can remember the times when me and my friends, we would laugh about things that were innocent and we would just laugh till we cried. When's the last time you laughed until you started crying? We should do that more often. Just a joy, just a joy goodness. You know, sometimes you can look at a situation or scenario and you can say, this is just good. Like we're in worship this morning, Kevin's singing that song and I'm just like, dude, this is good. This is good. And if that's not your flavor and you didn't think it was good, it's because you're lost. (laughs) Like it's just, it's just good. It's not about preferences. It was just good. There was a goodness to it. It's intrinsic to God. It's a good thing. What if God, we just ask God, God, would you recover in me? Not a moment, one time a week for a few, for a few minutes, but, but Lord, what if you could recover in me a life and an experience and an aurora of just goodness? Like I want to have goodness around me at all times. Peace and joy and goodness. What about innocence? Purity. I mean, we have so many people that have given up their purity. And, and what if we could just pray, Jesus, would you recover to me a purity? 
a purity of heart. So I wouldn't think the things I think and see the things I see and be the way that I am. My purity's gone. Jesus, would you just restore my purity? What about relationships? Do any of y'all have broken relationships in your life? If you could ask Jesus to restore something or to recover on your behalf something, would you ask him to recover your marriage? Would you ask him to recover to to its original form some friendships or some relationships with children? (laughs) Maybe you are in a position where you would ask the Lord to recover some relationships with your parents that are broken. Or maybe some friendships. God, would you just recover these? I mean, why not? God's in the recovery business. He's not just a seeking God, he's a finding God. And when he finds, he rescues and he redeems and he recovers what is rightfully his. And he wants to restore it back to where he put it in the beginning. And so this man says, Jesus, would you allow me to recover my sight? And this is what Jesus says in response. Jesus says in response to him, he says, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. He pronounces it. He declares it. Your faith has made you well. And then we look at the next verse and he says, immediately. Immediately. Not a delayed, not a mail in your rebate and then get the healing when it comes back. But immediately, he recovered his sight. And do you know what he did? He followed Jesus and he praised God. And it didn't just stop with him, but everyone who saw it, the scripture says, they also were glorifying God. Revival was breaking out. So what's the, how did he get healed? Did Jesus heal him or did his faith heal him? Jesus says, recover your sight. And then he says, your faith has made you well. So which one is it? Did the man's faith heal him or did Jesus heal him? It's both. The man was faith driven towards Jesus Christ. He exercised his faith in Jesus as the Messiah and Jesus delivered the power of God to make right what had gone wrong. It's a both and. Miracles are supernatural occurrences that penetrate into the natural world and miracles happen in the lives of those who were created in the image of God. So God sent his miracle through Jesus Christ, the one true living God, and through Jesus Christ, that miracle intersected into that man's life where he exercised faith. It's a both and. If you could ask Jesus to recover anything in your life by faith, what would you ask him to recover? I I don't know about you, but when I'm studying that passage and I'm writing this message, I'm like, preach it, Jesus. Anybody else? That preached anybody? Okay, maybe not. Um, We'll try again next week. If I stopped there, I would be doing you a great disservice. Because that, that preaches, like that resonates, like that, that message digs deep into my heart. But I would leave you shorthanded if I stopped there. And this is why. Let me, let me give you some resolve here. Because what you need God to recover is not any of the things that we listed. And here's the rationale, the logic behind that. If the Lord put those into your life, the same thing would happen that already happened before. 
You would give it up, you would give it away, or somebody would steal it. So if the Lord restored joy to your life, somebody's going to steal your joy. If the Lord put peace back in your life, you know what's going to happen? You're going to check your email. Gone. If the Lord put relationships back right in your life, you know what's going to happen? You will mess it up. You did the first time and you will again. I know it's their fault, but you, you played a part in that broken relationship. And so we can't lean on those because if we lean on those, they'll just be stolen again. And so what we should pray, and here's the pastoral instruction, if I can give you anything, this is it. Our prayer should be the same thing as this man's. I gave you, I gave you the, the option, Lord, let me recover this, let me recover that, Lord, let me recover this. But your prayer and your response to Jesus, what do you want me to do for you, should be exactly what this man's is. Recover my ability to see. And when he saw for the very first time, who did he see? Your prayer, if God can give you one recovery, your prayer should always be, let me recover my ability to see Jesus, and here's why. The reason that you want to be able to see Jesus again, like perhaps you saw him when you first got saved and your, your heart burned with a fire, love for him, like that first time when you got saved and, and those first days you were reading God's word and you just could not get enough of God's word and his spirit was burning in you and you were living it out by faith boldly and courageously. If you can get back to seeing Jesus with clarity and following him, no one can take that away from you. See, Paul says in Philippians chapter four, there's this famous verse in chapter four, verse 13 that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What Paul's talking is about is because he has Jesus Christ in his life and because he's walking with Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if he's on a mountaintop or if he's in a valley. It doesn't matter if he's living in wealth or living in poverty. He has contentment because he has Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is carrying him. Or if we go to the, the fruits of the Spirit, we go to the fruits of the Spirit, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, there is a list of characteristics or fruits of the Spirit. And most of those, if we were to go back through that list of what would you want the Lord to recover in your life, many of you would list one of those fruits of the Spirit. Let me read them for you just so that you, you know what I'm talking about. The fruits of the Spirit are love, I just want to have a fresh love in my life. Joy, I want joy in my life. Lord, recover that. Peace, patience, we're not going to talk about that one. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Like these are things that, that I want in my life. But the problem is, is if we just get those, someone's going to take them away. Patience, it's going to be gone before we walk out of this room. Self-control, it might last a little bit longer, but wait till I close that car door, walk in my house. See ya. Kindness, goodness, like these things can be stolen. But the fruits of the Spirit are the result of abiding in Jesus Christ. So if you pray, let me recover my sight of Jesus Christ, and you will follow Jesus Christ, he will give you these fruits. These fruits will blossom in your life. And if someone steals them, so what? Jesus is going to grow them back. And so what you should be praying as the odd man out what you should be praying is the same thing this man prayed and pray it with desperation. Jesus, would you let me recover my sight of you? 
I want to move us into an invitation. And there is a specific invitation here. This week, and if our worship team can come forward, this week I was doing something that I like to do, but it was a little bit different. Every week I try to do pastoral visits. That's where you just go and see people. And Friday is typically my day off, but I was out of town for a few days this week, so I had to do some makeup work. And so Friday I came to the office for a few hours, and then I was getting ready to go home. And the Lord just prompted me to go and visit someone that's in our church, a couple called uh, Bob and Carla Hobgood. Some of y'all know them, some of you don't. They're kind of the 9 a.m. crowd. So I go to visit Bob and Carla Hobgood unannounced. Um, in ministry, there's no better way to keep your people on their toes than to show up unannounced. <laughs> so good, so good. So I drive up there in the garage. They don't know I'm coming. After I convinced Bob to put his pistol down, we had a very good visit. That was actually a true story. Uh, he, was, he was pulled on me. Um, but they're, they're semi-shut-ins. Bob's health is kind of failing him. And so we were talking about, they were telling me the story of their son, Evan. Their son, Evan, is an adult man. A little over a decade ago, Evan was in Bosnia. He was serving with the armed forces. And while he was serving and leading his, his group on that mission, he just felt like something wasn't right in his body. And so he went to see a doctor. He wasn't injured on the battlefield or anything like that. He just had a sort of this sensation that something isn't going right with my body. So he went to a doctor. They had to fly him to another place to receive more accurate medical care. Eventually, after a long journey of testing and meeting with doctors, he ends up back in the United States with cancer. And he starts going through cancer treatments. And um, eventually he ends up in California where he's receiving medical treatment. And he has two children, Kyler and Chloe, who live here in uh, West Kentucky with their grandparents. Well, they don't live with their grandparents, but they're in the same area as their grandparents, Bob and Carla. And so um, Bob and Carla are telling me this story. And they said, one year ago, on the day that the Lord had prompted me just to go visit these people, he said, one year ago, we got a call from Evan. He said, I need y'all to come out. And so uh, Carla said, Bob couldn't travel, so I started making arrangements. And um, Kyler, the son, was going to go with Miss Carla. And Chloe, who had never been to California where dad was receiving treatment to see him. She'd seen him before, but never been out there. She had never been before, but she was going to go and make this trip. And so they were going to go out and they were going to see Evan. And she said, one year ago, we get this call and we're going to make arrangements. And he said this statement to me. It's what Carla's saying. And it resonated with me. He said, mom, I need you to come out here. I want you to bring the kids. Don't wait too long. Don't wait too long. What he was saying is I don't have very long. And so Carla understood what that meant. She got the plane ticket. She got the backpack. They got in the car. They drove to the airport. They flew across the country. And they got there. And Carla got to be with Evan. And Kyler got to be with his dad. And Chloe got to be with her dad. And I'm pretty sure that today, one year ago, he died from cancer.
And that family got to be there because they didn't wait too long. They're telling me that story. And this is what's just like raging in my heart. What's raging in my heart is that I pastor a church that's filled with people, some of which are waiting too long to cry out. Like you're just waiting to, like every week we're preaching God's word and we're inviting you to respond to the gospel and you're like, I'm gonna do it next week or I'll do it later. Don't wait too long, friends. Who in the world ever told you that there is an endless amount of time for you to respond to the conviction the Holy Spirit's putting on your heart? Like do something about it. Do something about it. Like, we don't have these big worship services just for fun, though they are fun. Like, we're not preaching our heart out just for the heck of it. No, we're preaching because we want you to respond. Don't wait too long. But if God is calling you to respond to him, if he's, if he's drawing you to himself, today's the day for you to cry out, Jesus, save me. Save me. And maybe you've been saved, but you're not walking with him. This would be the day for you to cry out with desperation. Jesus, would you let me recover my sight so I can see you again in a way I haven't seen you in a long time? My friends, this is the answer to every question that you have in your life. And now is the time. Don't wait too long. Now is the time to respond to the invitation. I'm gonna invite you where you are to stand. Our ministers, if you'd make your way to the front, if you're helping us with the prayer team, the altar team, why don't you go ahead and make your way up here? Listen, church, we are ready for you to respond. We have ministers at the end of every aisle. We have men and women that are at the front. If we can pray with you or encourage you or, or hear you, we want to. And so during this invitation, I'm gonna say a word of prayer. And at the end of the prayer, we're gonna sing, if you're in the front or if you're in the back or if you're in the balcony and you need someone to pray with you, or if you need to make a decision, don't wait too long. Now's the time. Lord, we thank you for your word and we ask God that you would lead us to respond in obedience to your calling, your conviction, and your drawing. Help us now in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. The invitation is open.